and all. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I know, yeah, a lot of us are under the weather, uh, feeling a bit uh, sick and sickly, so I'm glad to see so many, I'm assuming, completely healthy people in the room. Uh, but we will be pausing on the holy kisses that we've been dishing out over the last few weeks. Um, but yeah, just welcome. Uh, we've got a, a wonderful little uh, message or messages to share with you today. But before I get into that, there's just a, a couple of things I wanted to announce. And the first thing is, um, as of next week, we'll be starting our new series, uh, which is a Holy Spirit-focused series called Here's More. And if you look over the dates, you'll see that it covers nine weeks, plus also a, a couple breaks in between, like a mother's... And I know that uh, traditionally we don't usually do such long series, um, but we just feel that this is a really important, uh, I guess what we would say is a culture piece for uh, where the church is, but also for where we want the church to be going. So we're, we're just excited about the idea of being able to spend a large, large chunk of time uh, on something that we think is really important, not just to, I guess, the church as a whole, but to every believer. Uh, we want to have um, believers who are transformed by a relationship with the Holy Spirit, who are, who are led by their understanding of the Holy Spirit. And we also want a church that can sort of walk in unity as we gather around the Holy Spirit uh, and are ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And so this is a really long and wonderful series that we're really hoping that you guys are able to engage with. And so we encourage you to be present uh, for uh, the, the services or at least uh, watch them online or listen to them because we think as a, a total package, it is something that is going to be really important for us um, now and also in the future. So uh, just a, a little announcement of that um, coming up. Um, and now for, I guess, today's message. Um, yeah, uh, it's been really exciting coming off the back of the Easter devotions. I think most of you will at least be aware, if not have participated in our Easter devotion booklet, those 30 days uh, of devotions, and each day was uh, a little devotion or a reflection written up by a different person within our church. And they were just fantastic. A big thank you to everyone who participated in that and wrote things for that. We really do appreciate all the work that you put into that. Um, and as someone who uh, I've spent a whole heap of time collating them and read-throwing them, they were a, a genuine blessing to myself. Um, and we've had lots of really positive feedback uh, about the, the devotional series. Uh, and so I guess one thing that we might be uh, looking to do a little bit more in the future is just having a periodical space and time where we do get to hear uh, from, you know, members of our congregation who have something to share. Um, it is really great that we have, you know, wise uh, and insightful people in our midst, and so we do want to take uh, the time and chance when we can to hear from, from different people other than, uh, you know, myself or Pastor Paul or Pastor Sharon. And so uh, this morning we get a chance to hear from potentially one of the wisest people in our midst, and I say that because she is my boss's mother. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, we get, a, we get a chance to hear a short reflection uh, from, from Cicely Tucker. And so I, uh, please do put your hands together as we welcome her to the stage. <clears throat> Thanks, Cicely. This is all yours. Do with it as you will. That is scary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Carl. And good morning to everybody. Um, it's uh, a privilege to, um, to be able to stand here and just testify to the way the Lord keeps on working on each one of us. And um, 
I'm sure that you can identify with that. Uh, the um, devotion that I happened to write in the series was regarding Nebuchadnezzar. And when I read that, I thought, oh, well, I don't know much about this fellow. But however, it came boiled down to the fact that he was put in a place where he had to uh, accept the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, however, during Easter, I was reading the account of Jesus celebrating and enjoying the Passover meal in the upper room. He knew it was his last Passover that he would spend with them, and he wanted to be with them. And he was preparing and teaching them for the events that were going to transpire very soon. Just in your minds, um, try and capture the scene in that upper room. A lot of stuff happened in that room. They had a meal, but during or after the meal, during or after the meal, Jesus got up. He took off his clothing wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel. What a tender scene. How beautiful is that? Anyway, when Jesus came to Peter, to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you don't realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter vehemently protested, no, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Jesus was teaching him something in this moment. He said, Peter, unless you let me wash your feet, You cannot have any part with me. Wow, what a shock. But Lord, I've been following you all this time. This impacted Peter so much when Jesus said, you can't have any part with me unless you submit. That his immediate reaction said, well, Lord, wash all of me then from head to toe so that he could be sure that he was accepted by Jesus. In this scenario, Jesus was showing Peter he couldn't be his disciple unless he allowed himself to submit to the Lord's request of allowing Jesus to wash his feet. Now this is symbolic, but it was real. Lord saying, you must submit. This was all about an act act of submission to Jesus' lordship. It hit me right in here when I read this about submitting to Jesus in whatever he asked me to do. Sometimes it's very menial, very ordinary Sometimes I say, oh, no, it doesn't seem right. No, it's okay, I'll do it another time. But how often do I realise I've missed an opportunity 
or missed what the Lord wanted. And it, it, it does something in here when you miss those opportunities. So often I want to control the situation instead of yielding to him and saying, Lord, you know best. I will do what you say. This is really what true discipleship is. The only way we can know his full blessing and fruitfulness. Also, it led me to realise that when there is a lack of submission to his lordship, it leaves the door open, even a crack, for the enemy to enter and wreak havoc. His, Jesus' protection is compromised when we do that. In surrender to Jesus, we are totally washed by his blood. Uh, I can claim him as my rock, my protector, and uh, so much more that it would take, well, as I think a hymn says, it would take all the ink in the world to, and it, and it would run dry to write about what God is and who God is. And we can be enriched by all the blessings that he promises us. All I need, all I need ever is found in him. So why not walk in him daily, moment by moment? A little later, not very much longer on, but uh, Peter confidently made a bold commitment to lay down his life for Jesus. Well, we all have those moments, don't we, when we will vow to serve Jesus to the end. But sometimes there is that lack of pushing on and committing ourselves to, his, to him. And Jesus said, he predicted that you will actually deny me three times, Peter, before the cock crows. And this is what happened. As Peter waited around, warming himself by the fire, waiting around while Jesus was on trial. Jesus didn't re reject Peter at that point, but I sense that when... They locked, each, locked their eyes with each other. Peter saw love and not condemnation. But nevertheless, he was broken. And he called down curses on himself and he went out and wept, wept bitterly for his failure. But, you know, I have a sense that during the next few days when so much went on, and we know the story, he came, he was betrayed, Jesus was betrayed, he was taken to the, for trial and then he was nailed on the cross and so, and then put in a grave and then three days later he rose. What a joyous occasion as we've just finished celebrating that period but we will never finish celebrating. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so after Jesus had risen... He'd spent a little bit of time here and there with the disciples on several occasions. But one morning, he went to the beach and he set the fire to cook 
breakfast for them. How beautiful. How special is that? And after they had eaten, Jesus um, singled out Peter. He had a special purpose for Peter. He, he was wanting Peter's devotion. He's wanting his submission. And Peter said, do you really love me? Sorry, he said, Jesus singled out Peter and said, Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, do you really love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus asked him, Do you love me? Peter was a bit hurt by this time. And he was more emphatic. He said to the Lord, You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Jesus was looking for total commitment and submission. He was searching Peter's heart at that point. And he challenged Peter, Go deeper with me. Go deeper so that you can indeed feed my sheep. Do you ever find the Lord when he's saying something to you, he just doesn't leave it to the one time? He will show you something, maybe a verse, then another verse will come another time soon after and another verse or some circumstance and it you say, right, Lord, I see what you're saying to me. But it takes a bit of sinking in. It takes a bit of um, listening to Jesus. Um, and so I'm so thankful that the Lord pursues us like that. He doesn't let us go after the first time or the second or, or more. But continues to lead us on into a deeper life of commitment. Now, I just want to fast forward again uh, a fair bit. Uh, when Peter was present with all of those who were gathered uh, in Jerusalem after Jesus had risen into the clouds and they were awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised. At that moment, uh, sorry, at that moment, momentous event, Peter was empowered to preach to the crowds there that day. His life was changed, surrendered and empowered to minister from then on. And we know this, so much of the New Testament, there's a lot of the New Testament, Peter uh, in Acts and then his epistles, that we know that he was a, ma a different man, a new man, an empowered man but it had to come out of a heart of surrender of G to Jesus. And, of course, he wrote two epistles, two letters. And I just want to finish with a verse. There's much that Peter has taught us in the scriptures, but just one verse. Um, and um, so this is come, comes out of Peter's life now surrendered to Jesus. And I think it's on the screen. Uh, by, his, by his divine power, 
God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvellous glory and excellence. He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature the world's, and the, uh, escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. This is what a surrendered life looks like. May you enjoy that life. Amen. Thank you, Cicely. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing with us. And uh, yeah, we appreciate um, and honour the fact that uh, you are still consistently seeking a new understanding of God in your life and able to share that with the people around you. So thank you very much. Um, when, uh, when I first read uh, Cicely's devotion that was written in the Easter, Easter booklet, I couldn't get the word out of my head, um, lordship. And Cicely mentioned it again in this reflection as well. And yeah, now hearing, hearing uh, her reflection again, the same word sort of echoes in my head, lordship. Uh, and there are certain words uh, that we use in the church world, uh, whether it be in our prayers or in our sermons or in our songs of praise and worship. And I, I think sometimes those, those words start to lose their, their weight if we do not know the depth of their meaning. Um, we preach that, you know, God is uh, almighty. We, we sing about the glory of God. The, we pray that Jesus would be Lord of our life. But if we do not fully grab onto the depth of the meaning, then we start to miss so much. Um, I think of um, a people who have like apartments right next to train tracks, or in this case, like a train track goes literally through the apartment building. Um, and I think of how like, you know, like the floors would shake and the windows would rattle uh, and every hour on the hour there would be this deafening roar as a train hurdles past or through your apartment. And for the first little while it is this incredibly disruptive and abrasive experience, like your life is affected by the presence of it for a while. And then after a while, you, you stop noticing the rattling and you stop noticing the roars. Uh, you laugh when people come and visit your house and they mention the train because you're like, oh, I'd forgotten about that, you know? It's just faded into the background. You just start to accept this incredible presence in your life as normal. Um, I, I, I used to work at a factory called Manchester Tanks in Echuca, and this factory, we made, can you guess, tanks. Um, we made gas tanks for houses and cars and barbecues. I worked on the auto line most of the time, so I made uh, the LPG gas tanks. So uh, if you've got an LPG gas tank, get it double-checked. Um, uh, there's a reason I'm not working there anymore. No, no. Uh, but in, in the factory... Uh, in the factory, we had like these huge sandblasting units where like you had to wear like a full hazmat suit 
um, and you had like this hose that was like around this round and it just blasted out sand at such a rate that it would knock off all the rough edges off metal. And so the noise that these sand blasting units would, would make. And then we would have um, huge, huge furnaces uh, to, to cook the powder coating on and make sure everything was done. Uh, they had these massive metal cutters, which were pretty much just like a huge guillotine that could come down and they would cut through like several sheets of metal just by like slamming down and slicing them. So with this huge thump, uh, we had forklifts and trucks and and like and for some reason the management decided that they should also play the radio Star FM, but at a at a noise level louder than the factory noise level. Um, and so it was just this overwhelming sense of noise and, and craziness. It was this barrage of noise, and the factory ran at 24 hours a day. So you did 12-hour shifts, and the factory never stopped. And I remember when I first started working there, it was intimidating and slightly terrifying, to be honest. Um, and some of the men were not very friendly people. Um, but within the space of just a couple weeks, even, it just was what it was, you know? You go there, the noise, the movement, the machinery, uh, it became normal. It stopped being impressive. It stopped being intimidating. I guess I just stopped noticing it. You went in, you put your earplugs in, you put your earmuffs on, and you just did your thing. And there have been a couple messages recently that have, uh, I guess, reminded me of that sometimes I find too easy to forget. A noise that becomes too familiar and it starts to fade into the background. Uh, obviously, uh, Cicely's Easter devotion was one such message as she reminded us of submission and humility as we need to come before the throne of glory. Uh, another recent one was actually uh, Kenneth Wong, who spoke at the Young Adults in Campus Night two Wednesdays ago. And in his message, uh, Kenneth started talking about uh, Mephibosheth, who is the son of Jonathan, who is the son of King Saul. Uh, in the Old Testament. And so Jonathan and King David, who you'd be familiar with, uh, had this fantastic friendship that created a lasting bond between the two to the point where King David and Jonathan made like a covenant relationship and uh, said that their friendship and their peace would last on into their generations and so that would, they would continue to look after each other's family. Like they, they had such a, a strong relationship with each other that they, they promised to care for each other's family uh, for the years to come. Uh, and eventually after Jonathan's death, uh, King David finds out about Mephibosheth, and who is Jonathan's son, um, and he finds out that he is in a place of need. And so King David brings Mephibosheth, uh, I've never said that name more than once in my life, um, uh, brings him into the palace to care for him. And this, this shocks Sheth. And, uh, and so and Mephibosheth understands, he's, he's like, why would you do this for me? Because like, I am a low and undesirable person. Uh, he even responds like this in 2 Samuel 9. He says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me? And so Kenneth was, was sharing about this understanding of ourselves and our self-worth in light of who God is. And it's not just based on how we feel about ourselves, but both of these messages in different ways just reminded me of something. It reminded me of the lordship of God. And it reminded me of the difference between who I am and who God is, that there's this massive gap between who God is and who I am. And then it also reminded me of something equally important, which is the distance between who God has revealed himself to be and my understanding of God. 
Uh, I think of like my, my son, uh, he's sort of learning to tell time. And like time is a real concept, but his understanding of time is so different to the reality of time. Like two minutes is forever, and apparently one minute is a really, you know, really short time. And like he doesn't understand like the, how we go by five minutes on the clock and half an hour and the 24 hours and the 12 hour breakdown. And, but like his understanding of time and the reality of time are so far apart. And I often think that my understanding of God and the reality of God are so far apart. The revelation of God and what I have actually taken in are so far apart sometimes. I'm not sure if I'm alone in this. The, so, the slow decay of awe and, and wonder as we begin to go complacent with who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. Uh, I guess what was once this train rumbling through our lives and shaking our lives has become a normal noise that we can ignore if we allow it. What was once an overwhelming sense of grandiosity and an intimidating presence has now become lost in the daily ongoings. The train is no longer noisy, the factory is no longer overwhelming, and maybe for you, they never were. And today, I want to open our eyes and hearts to who God reveals himself to be. I think there will always be an understanding of God that is too big for us to fully grasp, that will be outside of our reach, but there is still a huge depth of understanding that he has revealed to us for us to know. Um, One of the passages I want to read from uh, first is Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 8. Uh, It says this, Oh, that you would burst forth from the heavens and come down, how the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make nations tremble. Then the enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. Oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no eye has seen, or no ear has heard, and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways, but you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected. Um, we all, we're all currently a little bit sick um, and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no, yet no one calls on your name or pleads for your mercy. Therefore, you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sin. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. And I want us to take a moment to sort of grasp what we are being told here. Uh, This passage is part of this longer plea uh, from Israel for deliverance. And in this plea, they start recounting out loud their understanding of God and their experience of God. Deeds beyond the highest expectation. So as in, as much as you can imagine that God can do, God can do more. And I'm not being cliched here. We are taking in, talking in literal terms. Like, imagine having the ability to speak worlds into existence. We're talking about the power to speak life into being. Since the world began, there has never been another being like God. There is nothing and no one that can compare to our triune God in any way. 
And then the passage takes a turn and sheds some light on the people involved in this situation. And we've moved from this picture of an amazing God, and now we look to humanity, constant sinners, infected and pure with sin. Our good deeds and righteousness are nothing but filthy rags. We are temporary. We are temporary. We fade like leaves. Basically, the Bible is telling us that we're the worst. We're the pits. And then we hit verse 8. And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hands. And so I want us to understand this. This is a self-portrait of you and me, but also for your sake it's you. This is a self-portrait of, of you. We are, I'm not sure if you've ever played with clay or, or Play-Doh or blue tack. Uh, if you come to our house, you'll find it stuck on every surface, thanks to my wonderful kids. Um, but let's, let's have a look at what it contributes to the situation. Whoa. Wow, look at it. Nothing. It doesn't do anything. We bring, this is us. We bring nothing to the situation. We don't add anything. It sounds a little depressing, I know, doesn't it? But the reality is, the Bible teaches us again and again and again that God is complete within and of himself. God is complete. He doesn't need anything added to him. He isn't missing anything. There isn't something outside of himself that he needs that we can provide. God is perfection, and in his perfection he is complete. He is not wanting. He is not lacking. He is not impoverished in any way. He doesn't need company. He is in relationship with himself in the Trinity. God isn't short-staffed. He isn't too weak. God isn't incapable. Uh, there's that famous scene in the movie Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise's character goes up to Renee Zellweger's character and he's like, you complete me. You complete me in his intense Tom Cruise way. And like, if God was in that movie, he would go up to Renee Zellweger and he says, I don't need you. I am complete. And she'd be like, oh, okay. Can I have Tom back? He doesn't need you. He is complete. This is, this is us without God. This is your self-portrait. God is all he needs. And then in Psalm 139, we read, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And the word that we use to describe this aspect of God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Uh, Kingsley Apuara Manuel says, the challenge with running from God is that you'll always run into him. There is no end to the presence of God. There is no place that he is not. In Psalm 147, it says, Great is our Lord, mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. We use the word omniscient. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. There is nothing hidden from his sight and his knowing. God will never be taken by surprise. An anonymous author once wrote, Did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? There is nothing new that you can inform God of. There are no insights that you have that you can give to him that he does not already know. 
God is aware of it all. God's knowledge is complete. Everything past, everything present, everything future, God knows it all. John 5, 26 tells us this, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God exists by his own accord. God did not grow out of something. There was no baby Grogu God, and he grew into an adult God. He was not initiated by anything. He did not require something to begin. God's existence is not comparable to our existence because ours is so small and his is so large. Uh, Wayne Grudem wrote, It is not just that we exist and God has always existed. It is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way than us. The difference between God's being and our being is more than the difference between the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop. God's being is qualitatively different. I guess... I guess I'm hoping, what I'm hoping to make clear is that there is a distance between us and God. There is a distance between who God is and who we are. And it is not a distance that we can close. Imagine you are a child uh, and you are considering the greatness of being an adult. I would say don't, it's a trap. But like, imagine you are a child and you're like, I cannot wait to be an adult because adults are great. There is a massive difference between a newborn, between a baby and an adult, hopefully. But the thing is, you know, the thing is with time, with food and water and some seeds, that baby is going to grow into an adult. They will close that gap. They will cross that distance eventually. You might be like, I don't know, a high school student. And, you know, the thought of becoming a CEO of this, you know, mega corporation seems ridiculous and outlandish because you're still, you know, trying to learn algebra. But, you know, with with time and with study and hard work and some luck and good networks, you know, you can become the CEO of this mega corporation. You can become the Prime Minister of Australia. Like, you can close that distance between where you are and where you want to go. Even though that distance seems incredible, you are able to close that distance. But the distance between who God is and who you are, between what God can do and what you can do, between the authority that God has and the authority that you have, That gap is a gap that you cannot minimize and make smaller in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Tim Keller said in the 1970s, uh, said in the 1970s, uh, which I heard was a really good decade, but I wasn't around. um, uh, He said that a Sunday school teacher changed his life with a simple illustration. Uh, The Sunday school teacher said, "Let's assume the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is 92 million miles." Uh, was reduced to the thickness of this sheet of paper, and held a, a sheet of paper. In that case, then the distance between the Earth and the nearest star, or I guess other than the Sun, would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And then the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Then Keller's teacher added, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in an ever-growing universe. And yet... Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. Finally, the teacher asks her students, now is this the kind of person that you ask into your life just to be an assistant? And we talk so often about God in terms of uh, holiness, in terms of purity, in terms of uh, light, 
Uh, and even this, this is something that I'm still wrestling to understand. Uh, in, in 1 John 1, 5 to 7, it says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie down and do not live out this truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. God is light and our sin is darkness. Um, And you know, we talk about this idea of Jesus coming and making a way for us to come in relationship with God. And it is because we cannot exist in the presence of a holy God because of the darkness of our sin. And like I was thinking like, you know, do you know what light does to darkness? Like, it doesn't just illuminate darkness. Uh, It doesn't just move darkness. But light removes darkness. Darkness ceases to exist in the presence of light. Sin cannot be tolerated in the presence of a holy God. Not because God is fussy, but because God is holy and perfection removes imperfection. We cannot step into that place of perfection and holiness and assume that we will come out unscathed. Pastor Sharon mentioned in her sermon a couple of weeks ago about how in the Old Testament the priests you know, would tie a rope onto their legs or their waist and a bell when they entered the holy place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. Um, and the reason that they tied a rope to themselves and a bell to themselves was because if they entered into God's presence, the holiness of God's presence, and they were unclean, they would die. Light removes darkness. It doesn't just move darkness around. Darkness ceases to exist when light is present. And so as these priests would come in, if they were unholy, they would cease to exist in the presence of a holy God. Jackie Hill Perry, in her book, Holier Than Thou, writes this. In the morning when the sun stands up and shines on your part of the world, look towards it if you can, and know that the holy God is more brilliant than that. The radiant incandescent light beaming forth from God's being has an illuminating effect. As it is with any source of light, it removes shadows, points to what is hiding behind it, tattletales on the dark, and makes it acknowledge the secrets it couldn't keep. Anyone that loves evil hates light because of this. For everyone who does wicked things hates light and does not come into the light, lest their works would be exposed. And I say all this because I do not want us to forget the thunderous train of God rushing outside our apartment. I do not want us to get used to the creator of the universe being in our lives. I do not want us to normalize this unbelievable concept of God in our lives. Because God can never become mundane. And then just when we are wrapping our heads around this wrecking ball of truth about God, we need to add on this next truth. John 3.16 says, For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. God, who does deeds beyond expectations, who no eyes have seen anything that can compare to God, 
who is a potter in relation to us being a clay, who needs nothing from us, who is everywhere, who is aware of everything, who is all-powerful, who is life and has life from himself and himself alone, who is holy, who is pure, who is light, that same God who needs nothing, loves us, you and me, loves us so much that he closes the distance between him and us. He initiates an acts to bridge the gap between him and us. Because there is no way for us to raise ourselves up, but the good news of the gospel is that we do not have to. A God who does not need anything from us wants us. A God who we cannot add anything to loves us. God, the almighty God, reaches down to us. Not because he needed something in return, but because he desires our heart and desires our worship. And how do you respond to a God like that? Our response is adoration. Our response is awe. Our response is worship. And not just words and feelings, but a posture of how we live our life in response to who God is. Our response is to fight apathy. And our response is to fight everything that allows us to forget the magnitude of God, the greatness of God, the scale of who it is that we speak to in prayer and song. When we sing songs that say, you are good, it is not just a pithy goodness. It is a goodness that destroys evil. It is a perfect goodness where imperfection cannot dwell. When we sing only a holy God, we are reminding ourselves that there is literally one holy God, and that is the God of the Bible, a holy God that destroys darkness and allows us to be bearers of his light and his holiness. When we sing, uh, you know, Christ is enough for me, we are reminding ourselves that we are clay in the hands of a potter, and it is only through Jesus that we have access to the hands of the potter. When we sing praise, when we sing worship, we are not just praising God, but we are reminding ourselves to be shaken, to be rocked by the life-changing truth of who God is. We are wrestling ourselves out of apathy. We are wrestling ourselves in worship out of boredom. And we are once again placing God where he belongs. And that is Lord over all because he is Lord over all. And my prayer is that we would be continuously shocked, that we'd be continuously amazed and left in awe of the glory of God. I want you to be worn out when you think about God, that our lives are lived in constant amazement of who God is, a God who needs nothing and yet pursues us to pursue you, to pursue me. My prayer is that our faith would never become normal, never become familiar, but constantly bringing us wonder and astonishment and amazement. That as we consider God in all his glory, that our hearts would overflow in worship, that we would see the world through the eyes of a God who delights in the praise of his creation, that our prayers would be vibrant because we are constantly reminded of who we are speaking with, that our worship would be full because we offer devotion and praise to God who has done it all for us. Hallelujah translates into praise God. 
Hallelujah that God was so great that he doesn't need us. And hallelujah that God is so good that he wants us and loves us. Hallelujah and amen.